but we wanted to recognize that this is a significant day for the United States, and uh, we ought to stop and think about it. So we're looking in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, and if you don't have a Bible, you can just follow uh, the text as it's printed in the bulletin. Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Um, I don't bring a lot of show and tell when I'm up front, but uh, I, pulled, I pulled this back out just because of the date and, uh, and brought it with me this morning. This, this is my copy of the New York Times from Wednesday, September 12, 2001, and uh, kind of looks like a 10-year-old paper, you can tell. U.S. attacked, hijacked jets, destroyed Twin Towers, and hit Pentagon in Day of Terror. Now, I, just as a, at that time, 33-year-old, I'd never seen a headline like that. Uh, I'd never seen a headline with the United States attacked. So uh, held on to this as a keepsake. I got it back out yesterday, and uh, I came back across a photo that I had not looked at in a, in a, in a while. It was a, a large photo that they ran in the, in the front section of the paper that day. I don't think you can really see it from where you are. See these straight lines? The straight lines are the side of the Twin Towers, and there's just a little figure right there. It's a man upside down who's, you know, he's falling to his death. And I don't know if you felt this, but, of course, there's been a lot of footage, a lot of clips and, and interviews of, of um, the, the plane striking the buildings and the Pentagon and uh, the one that went down in, um, in I believe, Pennsylvania and interviews with people who were affected by it directly or indirectly. <clears throat> And it's weird that you can watch this 10 years later and it stirs it up again. And I, don't, I know none of us have seen all the footage from that day, but you know, we've seen these clips. We know what happened. We know what it looked like when the, you know, the, the firefighters were out. They took that shaky footage of the first plane and the very uh, clearly documented striking of the second plane. We've seen that, but it just it stirs it up and it makes you wonder... You know, what do you do with this? Where, where do I aim what I feel? The death of Osama bin Laden does not resolve it. Now, that was something that our nation found necessary to do, but it, it doesn't make it go away. The passage that we're going to look at, uh, we need this today. Um, you know, one of the things that's said about Jesus in the New Testament is that He was like us in every single regard, yet without sin. He's like us in every way except that He never sinned. And what that means is that like us, He was presented with tragedies, with, with things that were outrageous, but He never responded with sin. In this text that we're about to read, He's presented with an outrage, with a tragedy. He's kind of, it's kind of like somebody lobbed Him a softball ready for Him to just, you know, go to town on it. His response is what we need to hear today. Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, 
you will all likewise perish. And he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Verse 22. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Let's pray together. Father, we want to hear you, but it may be that we don't want to hear you. We think about the man saying to you, Lord Jesus, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. A lot of us could say that with a lot of heart right now. That we believe even as we don't believe. Oh Lord, in our belief and in our unbelief, would you have mercy on us? Help us to hear you rightly this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. A lady named uh, Helen Whitney made a movie that uh, became, it was a PBS frontline movie about people processing 9-11 the year after it, and, and specifically about what happened to religious conviction, religious practice and belief by people directly affected by this, this tragedy. She interviewed 850 people, sort of cold from here and there, and did this special that came out a year, <clears throat> a year after the, uh, the attacks. It's called Faith and Doubt at Ground Zero. And uh, the Washington Post did a story about this, this documentary, and it said this, In faith and doubt, people face their deepest beliefs, asking whether evil and God exist. Some are atheists... Some are agnostics, others are Christians, Jews, Muslims, and Buddhists. For some, their beliefs were badly shaken. For others, religious faith was a comfort. A um, couple, of, couple of quotes here. One, and you may or may not remember this because it was so overshadowed by what happened before, but do you remember that just a few days after 9-11, another plane crashed in the New York area? Do you remember that? Uh, an area called Rockaway Beach. It said, one, uh, one man says he went to Rockaway Beach where another plane crashed only days later and cursed God for the cruel loss of life, including more than 30 of his friends. Quote, it was too barbaric the way the lives were taken, he says. So I, so I look at him now, God, as a barbarian. I think I am a good Christian, but I have a different view and image of him now, and I can't replace it with the old image. Now, here's another perspective. Uh, This is from a retired firefighter whose son was lost in the 9-11 attack. And he said this, God, quote, had nothing to do with this. He was fighting evil that day like he does every day. Now, one of the things that was interesting about this, this documentary is it began with questions. It did not begin with assertions. The documentary begins with just this montage of people asking questions. How could this be? How could this happen? Where was God? Uh, How does God feel about our enemies? What what do we think? That's the nature of tragedy. 
is you've got this, this surge of emotion inside of you and you're thinking about, where do I aim this? Or, you know, if something happens that's an outrage, you're wanting to go, where do I aim my questions about this, how outrageous this is? Where do I aim my outrage? And, I, you know, I've talked with, I remember talking with college students. I was a campus minister. I had just started working at Vanderbilt when uh, 9-11 happened. And I remember talking with students a few days after that, and we all talked about the fact that that day we watched TV nonstop. And some of you probably did that too. You just watched hours and hours and hours and hours. And when we discussed it, we realized we were all kind of doing the same thing. I can't remember who said this, but one of the students said something to the effect of, I was waiting for somebody to come on and say, all right, here's the deal. We understand why it happened, and we know what we're going to do about it. And it just never came. What do I do with my outrage? All right, that is a question about tragedy. And so I just the day being the date and the text being the text, here's what I want to look at. Um, the questions of tragedy and the answer to tragedy. The questions of tragedy and the answer to tragedy. This is from the Gospel of Luke. And uh, we're kind of just parachuting into a, a text here. This is Luke chapter 13. And what you have is... Jesus is going along his way, teaching and preaching and healing, and some people come to him and they talk to him about something that is an outrage. It's a tragedy, a recent tragedy. Why is it so outrageous? And there's a couple of things. Number one, it says that some Galileans were killed by Pilate. Now, probably not directly by him, but by you know, soldiers that were sent on behalf of Pontius Pilate. And when these Galileans were struck down... They were in the act of sacrificing. They were in the act of devout Jews worshiping. And so when they were killed, their own human blood mingled with the animal's blood. And it's hard for us to to relate to how sacrilegious that would be in that context. the, The closest I could get to it would be if a man walked into a wedding and murdered the bride so that not only are you looking at a murder in cold blood, but uh, so that her blood was very clearly seen on her white wedding dress. You know, we would say any murder, any murder in cold blood is a horrible thing, but that is just so over the top. It's so outrageous. It's so horrible. So there's that in their Jewish context. But the other thing is this. The reason I said it's kind of like throwing a softball is it happened in, to Galileans. What was Jesus? Jesus was a Galilean. You know, in the same way that if you heard about a huge explosion in your hometown, and let's say you are from a town and no one else in this room is from that town, it would land in you more than everybody else in the room because it's your people. It's your, your sense of place. So they're coming to him not only with something horrible, but it involves Galileans. So they come to him and they tell him about that. Now, the way Luke records it, it's not framed as a question. But what is the question they're asking? It's this. That was a really outrageous, horrible thing. That was a tragedy. What do you think about that, Jesus? Now, almost certainly, what they're really asking is, what do you think about what Pilate did? In other words, the question is, what do you think about the attacker and the attack? 
Now, one thing to know about Jesus, Jesus is never caught off balance, unlike us, in verbal exchanges. He's never caught off balance in verbal exchange. He always wins them, except for one, where he let a Gentile woman win an argument. That's another sermon for another time. But in this one, rather than just answer the question that's handed to him, what do you think about the attack? What do you think about the attacker? He turns the question into what? What do you think about the victims? It's such a strange way to approach it. Look in verse 2. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, he did a couple of strange things here. Number one, he directed the question, he directed the conversation away from the attackers. I mean, the people who brought that information are probably feeling and wanting him to do what we felt on 9-11. I want to know who these guys are and I want to know what we're going to do about it. But then he does this. He asks, what do you think about the victims? Now, as strange as that sounds to us, Jesus is he's pushing on a deeply held human belief. This belief shows up in the Old Testament and it shows up in the New Testament. A couple of windows here. In another gospel, John chapter 9, Jesus is walking with his disciples and he sees a man and it says that it's a man who was born blind. He's been blind from birth. And when he sees him, his disciples ask him, did that man sin or did his parents sin so that he was born in that condition? Now, what belief is there? It's that if you're going through a personal tragedy, if something horrible has happened to you, it must be because either you're a bad person and God's punishing you, or maybe your people are bad people and God's punishing them through you. And when they ask that question, Jesus essentially says, neither. And the Old Testament example is Job. You know, when Job was going through profound suffering, losing relatives, his family being killed, his wealth being taken away, his body going through extreme pain. His friends come to him, and the best thing they do is they sit with him for several days and they say nothing. Everything was great. And then they start talking. And the the gist of their counsel is, you must be sinning or these things wouldn't be happening to you. And God comes and rebukes them for saying that. Jesus turns the conversation to say, why did these people die? Why did these Galileans die? Or let's change it over to that other tragedy. And we don't know when this happened, but they did. Some kind of, you know, it was part of their news stories is that there was this tower in Jerusalem and it fell and it killed 18 people. Why did that happen? Did God just find 18 of the worst, most sinful people in Jerusalem and just line them up strategically and put the tower on and crush them? Here's, here's the thing. When we go through a tragedy, we want to process it. We want to aim our outrage. We want to aim our, our blame somewhere. 
Where are the places that we like to aim it? Well, you can aim it at the attacker. You know, aim it at Pilate. Do you remember after 9-11, even that day and in the following days, that windows were shot out of American mosques in different places? That some Muslim individuals were attacked on the street? Now, now what is that? That's the impulse of the heart to say, something horrible happened and I'm outraged and I'm aiming it at you because I'm identifying you with the attackers. But some people aimed it at the victims. Now, I don't mean the people who actually perished in 9-11, but America was attacked, so they aimed it at America. And it went two very different directions. One was very religious, and one was less religious. The religious one, there was a, a very famous incident where a televangelist, very prominent figure, said publicly that he laid this at the door of the gays and the abortionists, in the liberal agendas in our country. So that's why it happened. That, that's where I'm aiming my outrage. The other direction was to say, hey, look, America had it coming. Those twin towers were symbols of our selfishness and that we're imperialists. We want to own everything. We want to be the biggest consumers. We want to consume and not give. We had it coming. Aim it at America that way. None of those work. Jesus changes the terms of the discussion and says this, if you're going to aim your outrage somewhere, direct it inward. It's just the strangest way to respond. And, and again, I, I would say, learn this about Jesus, that there are times that he says things that are so over the top, even when people are hurting, you would almost, if you had been standing there, you would almost say, Jesus, how dare you broach, you know, spiritual discussions? How dare you, you broach theological conviction when someone is hurting? And it's as if Jesus would look back at us and say, well, you know what? I dare. Because you have to deal with this. Verses 3 and verses 5 say the exact, exact same thing. If you... Do not repent. You will not just perish, you will likewise perish. If you do not repent, you will have your own tragedy. If you do not repent, you, you will see something happen that if you could see it now, you would understand this is the ultimate outrage. But the outrage will be against you if you do not repent. Now, let's stop and define our terms. And I define this term a lot from up front because for so many years, I misunderstood it. When the Bible talks about repentance, and it is a huge theme in the Scriptures. The prophets talk about it. John the Baptist, when he's getting people ready for the Messiah, talks about it. Jesus shows up. He talks about it. He sends out His apostles, and they talk about it. When Martin Luther posted the 95 Theses on the door... Thesis number one is that when you follow the Lord Jesus, you live a life of repentance. It's a pretty big deal. I thought for the longest time that repentance was a turn. Now, that's correct. Repentance is a turn. But I thought it meant if I'm doing bad over here, I'm doing these shameful things, that repentance is when I turn and I start living right. That I repent 
by doing the right thing, and that is not biblical repentance. Biblical repentance is when you turn from what you're ashamed of about yourself, what's yucky about yourself, and what you're proud of about yourself. Remember our confession of sin this morning? Even our best works are defiled by our pride. And I turn from both of those to the Lord and say, have mercy on me. And the beautiful thing is, biblically, when you do that, it bears fruit. It does bring about change in behavior. It does bring about obedience to God's commands. But it comes, not from me saving myself, but from turning to God and saying, will you save me? Will you cleanse me? Will you change me? Now, this brings the other question. Because you know what the other question is? If we're talking about tragedy and we're saying, well, Jesus' response to tragedy is we all need to repent, which means we all need to turn to the Lord, now there's a new, tra- there's a new question about tragedy. And the question is, how can I turn to a God who lets things like this happen? I mean, don't you ever feel that? Don't you ever think that? The theological question of ten years ago today was, how and why did an all-powerful God let that happen? Uh, You know, I mentioned that documentary... Here's another quote from a, from a woman who she lost her husband and she said this in the interview on the documentary. She's a writer. She said, I, I couldn't believe that this God that I talked to in my own way for 35 years turned this loving man into bones. And now I can't bring myself to speak to him anymore because I feel so abandoned. That, you might say, is the question behind the question. The initial question is, well, I'm upset. What should I do about being upset? But then the real deep question is, how in the world am I going to turn to a God that lets things like this happen? even Even as I was talking about repenting, you may have thought, you know what? I would never say this out loud, but God, I'll turn to you when I'm employed. I'll turn to you when you give me a child. I'll turn to you when you give me a spouse. I'll turn to you when I get better and you heal me. But not until then. I used to trust you that you're good, but I'm older now. And I don't know that I can turn to you. If things like this happen to me, if things like that happen in the world kind of tragedy, the, the scope of it in our world. I'm getting older now. I don't know that I can turn to you. Now, with that question in mind, I want you to look at the rest of this text. Jesus, is, uh, Jesus kind of lays down the gauntlet, surprises us with his answer, and then he tells a parable. And keep in mind, when Jesus goes from a dialogue to a parable... He's not just, you know, being like a, a southern storyteller like, you know, I heard this good one about, you know, there's a tree. He, it is tied into what he was just talking about. So he's just thrown down the gauntlet. 
You want to know how to think about tragedy? You want, you want to know where to aim your outrage? You repent. All right, then verse 6. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things about this parable. Number one, you've got a fig tree. And his listeners especially the religious leaders, they would have caught this reference. That is a metaphor used of God's people in the prophets and of Israel being like a vineyard. You've got a fig tree in a vineyard. The, the religious leaders, the religious students, they would have caught. He's talking about Israel. That part is fairly clear in the parable. But here's the question. Who are the two guys who are talking? You've got one guy saying... I'm so tired of this tree. I mean, I planted a fig tree to have figs, and there's never figs when I come here. And I'm not talking the last few months. I'm talking the last few years. Cut this thing down. And there's another man who takes care of it saying, no, let me work it, let me fertilize it, be patient with it. In Greek, he really says, forgive it, and then we'll see. And in church history, this has been interpreted as meaning... God the Father is coming saying, you know what? My people are not bearing fruit. Israel's not bearing fruit. I'm going to cut it down. And Jesus sort of steps in with a cape and says, wait, Father, you know, you who love me, you who give me what I ask for, let's be patient with it and let me work with it. But there's a giant theological problem with that. You don't ever want persons of the Trinity at odds with each other. The three persons love each other. You know, it's not like God the Father and God the Son ever look at the Holy Spirit and say, you're outvoted. That never happens. They're, they operate on the same page. And I'm indebted to a scholar named Kenneth Bailey. And you may have never heard of him, I just, but I never would have seen this without his good work. And he's an expert in Middle Eastern culture and writing and biblical scholarship. He said, really, the only thing that makes sense is that these two men represent two impulses within God Himself. Because the same God, we've already said this in our worship service, He is the God of holiness. And He's sovereign. And He's holy, holy, holy. I mean, those texts that Jake read earlier from the Old Testament, those texts would have been known to Jesus' Jewish audience. They would have heard those read in the synagogue, in, in synagogue, that when calamity and tragedy comes, we are not biblically free to jump in and say, God doesn't, doesn't author things like that. God only authors the joyful and the wonderful things. That uh, was the power of the devil. The Scriptures are very clear that He does whatever He pleases. The New Testament says that He is the one who does all things, everything that happens according to the counsel of His own will. They would have known that. 
And so he has the right to come to his people, this fig tree of his that he's loved and cared for and nurtured that's not bearing fruit and say, enough already, cut it down. It's richly deserved. And, not but, and there's this impulse within God to love to show mercy, that He's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. How do we resolve those two impulses being in the same God? Because if we don't get that resolved, tragedy is going to take your theology and it's going to just dump it overboard. I mean, if we're going to look at something like 9-11, something big and splashy, or if you're going to look at something in your, your own life, your diagnosis or your unemployment or your strained marriage, your tragedy, and say, you know what? If God lets things like this happen, I don't know how there can be a God. Listen, here's what that's going to leave us with. Naturalism. And you know what naturalism says? The strong eat the weak. Don't be surprised by tragedy. Don't be surprised by 9-11. Don't be surprised by the Holocaust. Don't be surprised by what the Khmer Rouge did in Cambodia. Do not be surprised when the strong eat the weak. And don't be surprised when nature flexes her muscles. There have always been hurricanes, and there have always been tornadoes, there have always been tsunamis, there have always been volcanoes. It's always been this way. Keep act, stop acting like it's weird. It's not weird. That's what you're left with. That's not very satisfactory, is it? But with that in mind, and with this God who has two impulses within himself, look at verse 22. Luke, just, he just says this in passing shortly after Jesus tells his parable. It says that Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Now, do you understand what that means? Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 9, has already said, the Son of Man is going to go to Jerusalem. And he'll be handed over to the chief priests. And he'll be abused. And he'll be killed. The third day he'll rise. And no one knew what in the world he was talking about. Here's what that means for us. If we want the answer to how can there be a good reason for 9-11, God does not answer that question. And I would urge you, do not give out flippant answers. When someone's going through a great tragedy or more individual tragedy, do not tie it up with a silver ribbon and say, but you know what, I think God's really going to use this to do great things. Do not do that to someone who's hurting. We don't know why God did that. When Job went through his tragedy and he's saying to God, if God was here... Watch what you say. If God was here, I would present my case to him. Well, God showed up. And God says, gird up your loins because I'm going to ask you some questions. Were you there when I hung the constellations in the sky? Were you there when I separated the light and the darkness? Were you there to see lightning bolts appear before you and say, here we are, sir, we'll go wherever you want? 
No answer. But here's what it gives us. Is the, the reason we can know that we can turn to a God who's so sovereign that He could stop tragedies but doesn't always stop them is because we serve a God who because He is just and because He is merciful, He walked Himself into His own tragedy. And if you're going through something painful and think, well, you know what, that just doesn't do it for me, that's because you've never seen a Roman scourging. And you've never seen a Roman crucifixion. And you've never seen a mom watching her son go through that. And you've never, ever heard a man scream who had never been on another page with the other person of the Trinity to scream out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But as he's teaching and healing and walking, that's what he's walking to. Because he is merciful and kind and good. Now, even now, if you're left going, you know what, that is good news. That is encouraging. But what makes me sad is, even if everybody repents, the tragedy still happened. You know? Even if everybody repents, Haiti is still in disarray. Even if everybody repents, those people died. All those people died that day, ten years ago. What do we do about that? I have had a story in my crawl for ten years that I've been wanting to tell, and I never had a good place to put it, and it finally came this morning. So now I can sleep. The day after 9-11, uh, of course, we're just, you know, we're just absorbing news like crazy. I was listening to the radio, and I heard a news piece about the effect of 9-11 on children. Again, I don't mean long-term effect. I mean the day after it. Because we couldn't hide it from children. The schools let out early that day, and we had to say why they came home early, right? And it's all over the news. It's what everybody's talking about. What do we do with our children? And I heard the most incredible thing. I have no idea the names behind it. But a mother was on the radio and she said that her son did the oddest thing, I think the most wonderful thing, when he came home early from school. He, when she picked him up, he walked in the front door and he threw off his backpack and he walked over to the TV and he turned it on and he started playing a video game. And what I thought she was going to say is it was a military video game and it's where you kill the bad guys and he's just like taking it out, killing all the bad guys. And that's not what it was. She said she picked her son up from school, he walks in the front door, he throws off his backpack, he turns on the TV and he starts playing a video game and it was a game in which you build a city. And he started building and I wish, because now as a young man, I wish I could find him and say, you know what? You are onto something. Because here's the last little piece of the puzzle, the answer to tragedy. When Jesus does go to Jerusalem, he says he's going to be abused. And I'm going to end with this. One of the ways that he was abused is when these Roman soldiers are punching him and mocking him and they're hitting him with a staff. One of, one of these guys walks over and found thorns and kind of made this little makeshift crown of thorns and wrenched it down on his head, more bleeding. 
hail king of the Jews. And that's what he looks like up on the cross. And from where we're sitting, I want to ask you this question as we close. Why were there thorns in Jerusalem? The reason that there are thorns in Jerusalem is because when Adam sinned, it's not just that he died and all of us die, but God came to him that day and said, because of you, the ground is cursed. You didn't just ruin it for you. You've ruined it for the earth. And the evidence of that is going to be the thorns. The reason there were thorns next to that Roman soldier is because the earth is cursed. And Jesus, this is so unbelievable, the last Adam, the Adam that the first Adam should have been, He bears on His perfect head the symbol of how screwed up the earth is and how tragic our lives can be. He bears it and bears the wrath of God on Him and it so that one day He would not just get His people into heaven, although He's going to do that, but He will remake the earth. Haiti... It's full of amazing people. But can we ever really rebuild it? I'm not saying we shouldn't try, but can we ever do all that needs to be done? Can we ever rebuild Malawi? North Korea? The Congo? It's so much. We need, we need a new Haiti. A new Malawi. The new Congo. A new Korea. That is the very thing that Jesus died to accomplish. I cannot give you the answers that we want from God about why did you let such and such happen. What I can give to you on the authority of His Word is this. If you turn to Him, if you repent, whether it's for the very first time this morning or for the hundred thousandth time, you'll be turning to the God who is sovereign over everything and who is so merciful that he walked himself into torture and crushing and death to heal it. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we do want answers. And we don't know if in the new earth you'll explain to your children why you did all that you did. We think that you will, but... We want to say to you right now, as we see through a glass dimly, that you are God, you are God, and we are not. You are the creator, we are the creatures. You are infinite, we are finite. But, O Lord, you became man. You became man and bore on your body not only the sins of your people, the curse of the earth itself so that one day we can have the earth we want. Lord God, make this lovely to us. Even if we're deeply hurting right now, make this lovely to us. Make that gospel lovely across our land. Grant us repentance. Enable us to turn from what is obviously wrong and to turn from our pride and turn to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.